I'm Joni Guzman with the American Heart Association. We all know that stroke is a leading cause of death and disability. Together, we can change that. Join the American Heart Association and the Montana Stroke Initiative for a series of podcasts covering guideline-based stroke care from pre-hospital through acute treatment and even into post-acute care to learn more about timely, effective treatment guidelines and best practice sharing. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to heart.org forward slash Mission Lifeline Montana. Hi, and welcome to Montana Fast Chats. My name is Piper Kometz, and I'm a stroke nurse in Bozeman, Montana. And today we have Penny Clifton with us to um, talk about advanced directives and the definition of quality of life. Um, it's a very juicy subject that we're going to to dive into. But first, Penny, will you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Penny Clifton. I'm the stroke program coordinator at St. Vincent Hospital Intermountain Health in Billings, Montana. I've had that role for about 14 years now. I've been a registered nurse for over 40 years, and my entire career has been pretty focused on neuro and neurocritical care. I'd like to note that Penny trained me as a baby nurse. I think it was 12 years ago. And I'll never forget that I had a stroke patient down in the ICU and I I failed to do my charting perfectly. And um, I remember Penny coming down to the ICU and threatening me in a very humorous and effective way. And ever since then, my stroke charting has been perfect. <laughs> so Gee, I'm not real sure I'm happy with that, with that recollection, <laughs> but that's okay. That's yeah. okay. But you fixed me real fast. <laughs> Advocacy has a lot of different faces. So, yeah. Um, so, Penny and I have met at a couple of statewide um, stroke conferences, and we have had conversations about quality of life in the setting of stroke. So, stroke is uh, the number one reason for disability in the United States. And it's noted that about one in four people will experience a stroke in their lifetime. Not all of those people who experience strokes are left with disability, but a certain number and a significant number are left with varying disabilities. Um, I have experienced this recently with my father, who went from being one day a perfectly capable, independent human being to the next day um, being a modified Rankin of five, which is something that we use in the stroke and medical industry to denote that he's full cares, completely bedridden, wearing diapers, um, in a wheelchair, hemiplegic, meaning he can't move one side of his body. This was a man who stopped taking his medications because he felt that medications did not indicate a good quality of life. So all of a sudden, we are left with him in a new state of being. And how do we deal with this? Um, I quickly went to his living will and I flipped through all the pages and it said, I don't want a feeding tube and I don't want to live on life support. Um, but that didn't apply to this situation because he was breathing on his own. And if we fed him, he could chew and swallow and digest food. Um, so I think we're, we're realizing that these advanced directives that we have really don't cover this scope of disability. Um, so Penny, with, with that story, let's kind of dive into advanced directives that we generally see with our patients and 
what they do cover and I guess what they they don't cover. Right. I think that the the example that you just gave for your dad is is a perfect example of the donut hole, so to speak, that most folks fall into. As you mentioned before, um, stroke is not a killer. It is a disabler. And I think the evidence of how far we've come in improving stroke care and rescuing people from their strokes in the emergency department, the evidence for that, sadly, is the number of people who are left alive but profoundly disabled. I Living wills make the assumption that people it, it are a very black and white assumption that you will be faced with um, a situation in which you uh, have or, or are losing heartbeat and breathing and the decision is whether or not um, to resuscitate you. Um, some living wills offer a little bit of information about tube feedings, but that's it's, it generally, it's a little bit more bland than that. It says, I don't want to be kept alive by tubes. And the sad part is, and your dad is a perfect example of this, that it didn't, it didn't cover everything. And what we find ourselves faced with in the hospital is families who've had this happen to them very suddenly. They are in uh, so, somewhere in anger and denial mode. They're, they don't want this to have happened, but it has happened, and they're pretty angry, and they refer to their family member as a fighter, and they're all in, and they kind of want everything done until they come to terms with the fact that things are not likely to get a whole lot better than this. And then they're not real sure what to do. They're not real sure what their father their, or their brother would accept as the definition of life. Um, many, many children have made a promise to their parents that they won't put them in, quote unquote, the home. But the home, which is a nursing home, a skilled nursing facility with physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy, may be exactly where they need to be if there's any hopes for recovery. And yet there the family is in that dilemma that they've made this promise and now they don't know exactly what to do. Um, and I think that it's very difficult for us in stroke, and I think with any um, chronic and disabling disease, it is very difficult to prognosticate about how good this is going to be and when it's going to happen. And we're really reliant on folks having had discussions with their families, and this is what doesn't happen, Piper, about yeah. what the definition is of 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 quality of life. And I was thinking about this this morning before we got online, and I know I've mentioned this to you before, that I got pregnant really late in life with my only child. I was 37, and at 37, there's a lot of risks that go along with a pregnancy, not just for the baby, but with, you know, problems, but, but for me. And so I made what at the time was a piece of paper called a five wishes. It was very, very detailed advanced directive, and it did go into quality of life. Now, I'm a healthcare person. So I have lived these stories with my patients, as have you now with your dad, over and over and over again. And I had a language that went along with, you know, what I could see down the pike for myself. And I put this in my my directive. And most persons will not think to do this. I was willing to accept a tracheostomy. I was willing to accept the amputation of one leg. I was willing to accept being paralyzed from the waist down as long as I could take care of my own body you know, drive, and I was cognitively intact. I would not accept any situation in which someone else had to take care of me. Now, I, because I'm a healthcare person, I could look down the pike into a bad, you know, pregnancy gone bad, and I could see all the possible things that could go wrong with me. Most people can't do that. 
So what you have to have is a description of what, it, how much autonomy and self-determination and independence defines your quality of life. What will you accept? There are people who would be comfortable being in a wheelchair, being cared for by others, as long as they can communicate and are cognitively clear. It's those kinds of discussions that we're talking about here. I think you make a really good point about the language and being in the medical field, we're able to have that language. But I experienced it firsthand. My parents are not medical. My mom had no language for any of this. I was kind of blown away, actually, at how limited her understanding of um, the medical world and terminology and decide making decisions about health was. Um, so given the fact that not everybody is medical, what are your recommendations for having this conversation? Who holds the conversation? How do we document the conversation? And how do we include this into um, a more beefed up advanced directive? Um, I personally think that I personally think that a, a freehand, you know, this can be a freehand written document. You don't have to use somebody's form, so to speak. I mean, there are some legal forms. There is a form called a POLST form, Provider Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And everybody who's admitted to any kind of nursing home facility has to have one of those in place. Those are actually very detailed and are a good template for the kind of thing that we're talking about. So there's that legal form. But beyond that, I think you can freehand write something and all it has to do is be is be witnessed, the signature be witnessed. Watch for opportunity. And, and there are folks who will tell me that their parents were unwilling to have this discussion. That's not unusual. People are kind of uncomfortable talking about their morbidity and their mortality. Watch for opportunities where maybe somebody else in the church or somebody else in the neighborhood gets ill or there's something on the news about someone or a family member who's gotten ill use those as templates to open templates to open the discussion looks what happens to so and so what 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 would you want me to do if this happened to you um and, and all you can do is keep trying some folks are very resistant to the dialogue um but many people um you know children with with parents and 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 siblings are able to look at the other person and have a pretty clear understanding of what their value system is and what what matters to them, how they take care of themselves, how they treat others. But in terms of the paperwork, Piper, I think something after the pulse, because it is pretty detailed. It has like yeah. short term things in it. You know, I'll take a feeding tube short term. Um, I'll take a I'll take a breathing tube short term. Um, those were things that I put in mind. You know, you can put me on a breathing tube for a week, but if you're not getting me off, this is this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I, but I think a freehand document about what they will accept. And, you know, I, it may be that it would be a good idea for us as healthcare people to craft these questions. Mm -hmm. You know, would you accept a 30 day stay in a nursing home if it was, there was a good chance they could get you back to your own home? Um, would you accept living with one of your kids? It, that's a big one, you know? Um, I think that maybe we maybe that's what we need to do, Piper, is we need to craft these questions to drive this dialogue. Uh, there's another one that you and I had talked about, about organ donation. Um, right. People do this on their driver's license, but they never tell their families. And then we get to that point in the hospital and they find out their family was a registered donor. And it's it's dreadful for them because they're already losing the person that they love. 
And this makes them feel like they're losing something else. You know, something else has been taken out of their control, but it's a legally binding document. So that's a another great thing that we would need to include in a, a list of questions to prompt this discussion. I think that there is a National Advanced Directives Month. I'm not really exactly sure where it is. I think it's in the spring sometime. But it does make me wonder if that would be something that we could come up with. Now, I think that a, a patient's primary care provider is a good person to help with this dialogue. Because if you're in your PCP's office with congestive heart failure, or you've had an MI, or you've got marginal kidney function, or something, that person is, is well-skilled to say, you know, the next step with your disease process is this. This is what it would look like if the medicine stopped working. And, and then that prompts the discussion about quality of life. So I think there's a role for that person, but that person might be skilled for the pathology pieces and the disease pieces when there's some other stuff that's a little bit more soft, you know, um, about yeah. being independent and being able to bathe one's body and, and being able to communicate. And um, so I, I think hopefully that's an answer to your question. I, I could be kind of long-winded. No, that's a great answer. And, you know, I just had an idea when you were talking. Um, we always show up at health fairs for, with stroke booths. And maybe that could be part of the stroke booth is have you had this conversation and what would that conversation look like and what elements would you include in that conversation? And one thing that is giant in this, it's like the elephant in the room, is um, insurance and finances. Oh yeah, I mean, it's I'm so such glad. Yeah. big topic. And I think about this. I really think about this with my dad because he went from needing nothing to needing 24-7 care. And we did end up bringing him home. He was VA, which was amazing. But what if you don't have insurance? What if you just have a little bit of insurance? Not many people have long-term care insurance. I think my parents had long-term care insurance that covered like um, maybe like $47 a week or something like that, which is laughable. That is one hour of care with uh, an agency. So where does the um, finance conversation fall yeah. into all this? And then one other thing that I, it was such a mental shift for me with dealing with my dad. And as he progressed in his illness, he lost more ability. Um, and, and, and as a nurse and a medical person, I often think we think about what can we do? What can we do? But there's a paradigm shift in here it, with these advanced directives to think about what do we not do? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's really important when you're looking at, okay, this person doesn't want to be in a wheelchair for their whole life, but they are breathing and feeding themselves. What do we do then? I mean, so there's a big gray area. So I think, um, Penny, we had talked about this before and you had mentioned this is when you get a hospice evaluation. Can right. I talk a little bit more about about that? <laughs> sure. And and I think that first of all, I think the well, let's let's switch to a different world word yeah. and let's call it palliative care. Okay. Palliative care includes a discussion of hospice, but but it's about aligning the patient's goals with kind of with reality and with the doctor's goals and getting everybody on the same page, so to speak. Um, and hospice can be part of that discussion and. To be accepted into a hospice situation, whether it's in your home or a facility, there's there are hospice diagnoses, and lots of those are linked to 
um, what the expected life expectancy is. It's not true for everything, but that can be part of it. But I think the bottom line with hospice is you make a decision about the things you're not going to treat. I will not go to the hospital if I have a fever. I will not have surgery. Um, I will not have CPR. They will not put me on a breathing tube even for a short period of time. And you just make decisions about what you will and will not treat. So we have hospice diagnoses um, based on expected life expectancy, but they also manage the things that um, you do and do not want to, to treat. For example, you can't be in hospice and expect to have a, a full court press with CPR and stuff like that. That's a, that's a really good discussion. Um, and I want to loop back to the insurance piece a bit. Hospitals and healthcare providers will never withhold treatment based on the ability to pay. Number one, we need to say that. That's a good thing. But the outcome of that is that a person can be left in a situation where now the fact that they don't have insurance really plays into what they have access to and what they don't. So they have access to all this excellent medical care and stroke care, emergency department care, procedures, medications. But then when all that's said and done and they've survived their stroke with a disability, the fact that they didn't have an insurance didn't matter up until then. But boy, it does now because now they can't get into a nursing home. Or now if they need long-term care, we have to sell the family home. It, it is, I think that there is no true prevention for this with the exception of uh, people being willing to look harder at getting insurance if they don't have it, engaging with Medicaid, veterans who are disconnected from their service, getting connected with their service, reconnecting with the VA. More than anything else, I think I, I, you and me, we would focus on awareness. Please understand that this is the reality of it. You cannot stay in the hospital forever. Um, and we've had that situation show up where that's a family expectation. Um, uh, and, 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 and this is what not having insurance means, or this is what only having Medicaid means, or this is what having the, you know, the, the simplest form of Medicare means. It's, it's a delicate discussion. It may not matter at the front end, but it sure matters, doesn't it, Piper, at the back end? Huge. It's giant. And I actually think we're going to do another podcast where we talk just about the financial aspects and insurance of stroke. It is, um, it's the elephant in the room for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think a really interesting thing from my experience for me was, you know, talking about how my dad didn't want to have a life where he took medication because that wasn't considered quality of life for him to being this, you know, fully dependent person. Um, we see this all the time in the hospital, right? Penny people say um, DNR and then they get in there and everyone says do everything, right? So that changes um, your, your, your wishes change in the face of emergency and reality of like this could be it. And so um, my dad had his stroke and I would say there was a redefinition of quality of life after his stroke. And there was a redefinition for me of what quality of life meant, because I would have always said, like, if anyone in my family can't walk, needs diapers, needs to be showered, um, that's it. We, we're not, we're a pretty independent family. We're not really into that. But then my dad has a stroke and you're faced with the reality of it. And quality of life became, can we laugh together? Can we share a meal together? Can my dad experience his granddaughter for another couple of years? Yeah, that's, that's enough. So there is always a sort of redefinition of um, quality of life in the face of, I guess, emergency or end of life. But 
how do you deal with this when somebody's disability is perhaps affecting their decision-making capabilities? So where does their voice lie with this? Do we look at their quality of life, decision-making prior to their um, prior to their illness or disability, or do they have voice after? And how do, do we decide right. if their voice post-disability is reliable? Right. So Piper, I think that this drives home the point that these dis- these discussions have to be had when somebody is lucid, but uh, and, and before they get ill. But that being said, if it's afterwards, there's two concepts that I would want people to understand the difference between. So the first one is true competence. Competence is actually a legal definition. Incompetence is declared by a court and it is permanent. You don't ever come back from that. When you're declared incompetent, somebody in your family is identified as your guardian and you have no ability to manage your own money or any decisions after that point, done, done and dusted. But there's another one that's probably more relevant to your dad and most of the patients that we take care of, and that's decisional capacity. Decisional capacity kind of waxes and wanes. People who are emerging from anesthesia don't have decisional capacity. People who are on infusions of strong pain medications don't have decisional capacity. But on a daily basis in the hospital, there are tools, really specific research-validated tools that doctors can use to decide at any given point if someone has decisional capacity and it's at that point that you have that discussion about what they want and what they don't want. 30 minutes later, maybe they will be disconnected again, but you do have to watch for those for those opportunities to have that discussion. I just want people to understand that just because someone is injured, ill, and in the hospital doesn't mean somebody else makes their decisions for them. Uh, we still honor self-determination and autonomy. We still listen for that person's voice. That's why the organ donation thing is considered so valuable because it's an advanced directive. I mean, it was something you claimed before you were ill. Um, so I think that would be the best answer I can I can give to that question is to watch for those periods of lucidness and be able to ask the the pointed and and relevant questions at those at those moments. It really is such a complex topic. It's complex talking about it, but then um, it's very complex actually carrying out the person's wishes. And that was also a paradigm shift for me because once we kind of got to the end in my father's course um, and, you know, he wasn't able to feed himself anymore. He wasn't able to get out of bed anymore. His disease process had advanced so far um, that we needed to align with his wishes to not be kept alive. But in aligning with that, it's very difficult because we don't like to watch people suffer. That is uncomfortable. And disability and end of life, there is inevitably some suffering. But um, if you are aligning with somebody's wishes to not prolong the disease process, not prolong this um, position where they're completely disabled and can't fend for themselves, you're actually being kind to them when you are not doing the things so that you can expedite the end of all of that. So that I, I don't know if that really makes sense, but there's kindness in adhering to a person's wishes. And that can feel that can feel really harsh at the end because there is a certain element of this where you're witnessing suffering and disability, but um, it's also kindness to let that person go. It, it, it sort of reminds me of a patient that we had in the ICU. 
She was old. She was very sick. I think she had coded a couple of times and her family was always in the room saying, do everything, do everything. And her family went to lunch and she told the nurses, lock that door. They just aren't letting me die. And so, of course, you don't want to see your loved one go through this. You don't want to see your loved one die. But it's kind to um, to adhere to their wishes, I guess, is what I'm trying to I, say. I agree. And remember also that there's a, an extreme, there's a large burden lifted from loved ones and family when they know they're speaking with the patient's voice. Then there isn't one person making a decision about DNR. The patient already made the decision or one person making a decision about what we're going to treat and what we're not going to treat because the patient made that decision. And so there's a huge burden lifted when a family has these dialogues, they know exactly what somebody wants. I think the other place that this becomes difficult, and we had this just the other day with an elderly gal in the hospital, um, and and it's important to notice that this doesn't happen all with elderly. But we, you know, stroke has kind of a trajectory, and some illnesses have a trajectory. And and we, you know, we made a deal with the family that um, not necessarily a deal. That's probably the wrong language. We asked them to give her the benefit of the doubt for about 48 hours. Let her show us if she is going to head down a path of some recovery or not. And and just that that benefit of the doubt helps them because they feel less like they've, quote unquote, pulled the plug, so to speak, if they've given her an opportunity to have her body show them which direction she wants to go. And then we always make it very clear to folks that you can make some decisions at the front end and know that those decisions are reversible. You can always try something, and if it doesn't work, you can withdraw it. Um, and that way, it gives them a bit of a, a bit of a buffer. So, if, for example, with swallowing, your dad was able to swallow. Lots of my patients aren't. You know, they can try a feeding tube for a couple of weeks and see if adequate nutrition helps somebody to rally. And if it doesn't, then you switch to a different direction. Um, so I think there's always those opportunities as well. But you have to go into it with an understanding of what that person would define as a quality of life. There is no point in tube feeding someone if the outcome is something they wouldn't accept. So it brings us right back to that, right back to that full dialogue as well. I think that's a really good point that you can always change based off the circumstances. I'm kind of a person that gets set in my ways and I think this is the course that we're going, but then you can change that course. So I think that that's another, another good point. Um, I feel like we could talk about this forever. It's <laughs> such an interesting topic, but I suppose if we do, this wouldn't be called fast chats anymore. So right. we might need to, to wrap it up, but I think the take home here um, is that you need to have these conversations. And I think in the medical world, we need to start initiating these conversations. Would you like to say anything in conclusion, Penny, about that? I think the responsibility is on you and me and those of us in the healthcare profession based on the thing that we said earlier. We know what this stuff looks like and the average public does not. It's up, you know, so maybe you and me, people like us, need to come up with questions for primary care providers to use uh, or for patients to ask their primary care providers, if my congestive heart failure doesn't respond to X, then what does it look like? Questions to help drive the dialogue forward with the primary care provider and questions to drive the dialogue between loved ones. I think the onus is on us because the public is always very surprised when they land in this situation. But we know... And we need to be the ones to build the tools for this. It's 
it's fascinating because we deal with this every day in the hospital in our jobs, right? But it's still not something that we talk about a whole lot. And I loved how you said teachable moments. I don't think you said teachable moments, but that's what I took home. Look for commercials or movies or situations where somebody is in that position to have that conversation with their family because most people do just want to assume that they're going to die in their sleep. And that conversation is a little bit uncomfortable to have for many people, especially if you're not in the healthcare field. So look for those teachable moments and open up the box of discussion because it is very important. It'll make your life easier in the end and it will make our life as medical practitioners a little bit easier too. So um, thank you for being with us today and you can listen to this podcast anywhere you like to find your podcast. Thank you, Penny. Thank you, Piper. Great topic. And I hope we can do more work on this together. Bye-bye now. Agreed. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to heart.org forward slash Mission Lifeline Montana. A Huda Media Production.